Good evening, everyone, and welcome to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight, and our guest today is Chris Carter, the author of Science and the Near-Death Experience, How Consciousness Survives Death. Chris is originally from Canada and currently teaches internationally. And today we're going to discuss his latest book, Science and Psychic Phenomena, The Fall of the House of Skeptics. Welcome, Chris. How are you doing, Miriam? Excellent, thank you. Uh, I should mention that Chris is speaking to us from Korea. Chris, tell us a bit about yourself. I understand that you were ed educated at Oxford. That's right. I have two degrees from the University of Oxford, Exeter College. I suppose I wrote the, my books because of a major disagreement that I had with a uh, diehard skeptic several years ago. Quite frankly, I was shocked by his ignorance and by the crudity of his arguments and so I decided a book was needed to examine the evidence without prejudice and to counter these sort of dogmatic beliefs. You know it's interesting my my husband was uh, educated at Cambridge but uh, reading your book I could have almost guessed that you were educated at Oxford it's so carefully reasoned and and beautifully articulated so kudos on that. Well, thank you. Um, so you decided to take this person on, and uh, how did you originally become interested in the whole world of psychic phenomena? Hmm, it's hard to put put a, uh, to say exactly. Um, I've always been interested in controversial issues uh, in science or philosophy or what have you. Um, I suppose it was just something I was interested in and uh, I began reading uh, reading on the subject. I had some unusual experiences myself which I really don't want to get into. Mm -hmm. um, so when I got back from from studying in England I began to read and uh, and I was surprised by what I found. Um, and then I started to wonder if I was simply being one-sided, if I was neglecting the other side of the story so to speak. And so I began reading the so-called skeptical literature, and uh, I was even more shocked by the skeptical literature than I was by uh, the favorable literature. Um, again, I thought it was crude, I thought it was superficial, I thought it was misleading, and uh, what the straw that eventually broke the camel's back and uh, prompted me to write my books was, as I said earlier, uh, a debate I had with a particularly dogmatic skeptic. Mm -hmm. I was shocked, and I thought that uh, you know people need to need to hear a defense of these views. You use the term psi, psi, for yes. a, kind of a shorthand for psychic abilities. Um, you review the history. It, it's always so helpful when people give the whole historical context for any kind of an argument. So, you know, I, I, I was fascinated when you told that little anecdote about Thomas Jefferson. Um, and uh, what, what, what was it? Remind me. Oh, uh, that was at the very beginning of the book. Right at the beginning of the book, where, where yes. he was saying it's, it's more likely that, um, they, that two physicists were lying than that a rock... A meteor should fall from heaven. Yeah, I was discussing. I was discussing the controversy um, about how scientists at one time denied 
that rocks could possibly fall from the sky because there's no rocks in the sky to fall. And so they dismissed reports of meteorites. Um, eventually, they changed their mind, but as late as 1807, Thomas Jefferson, who at that time was president of the American Philosophical Society, um, reacted to a theory propounded by two New England astronomers that a meteorite was of extraterrestrial origin by remarking, quote, I could more easily believe that two Yankee professors would lie <laughs> than stones would fall from heaven. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm a little disappointed that he said that because I'm an alumna of the University of Virginia, and he's one of my heroes, but he, he was good on everything else. Um, but this actually points to the heart of your book, which is the difficulty people have in believing in something they cannot see, that they have no objective evidence for. So you start by talking about the Gansfield experiments. What was their importance in all of this? The Gansfield, are, the Gansfield experiments are telepathy experiments. Um, I do argue that the evidence goes back much farther than the Gansfeld, which was started in the uh, late 1970s, if I remember correctly. Um, JB, Joseph Banks Ryan, he was the man who coined the term ESP, extrasensory perception. He was doing experiments back in the 1940s and the 1950s. And I quote two so-called skeptics in the 1950s who are on record as saying that if this were any other field, then the experimental data would be conclusive. Um, but the reason they didn't uh, didn't accept uh, Ryan's data and the data of other parapsychologists was because they were under the mistaken notion that uh, uh, there was some sort of conflict between conventional science and the existence of psychic abilities such as telepathy or precognition or clairvoyance. Um, of course, that's nonsense as we know today, but many so-called skeptics still are under the uh, impression that there is some sort of theoretical conflict between, say, physics and uh, and uh, the existence of these abilities. That somehow it would turn the laws of physics upside down. But it's nonsense. Uh, several modern physicists, uh, including David Baum, Henry Marginot, Nobel Prize winner Brian Josephson, Olivier Costa de Beauregard, have gone on record as saying that absolutely nothing in modern physics, as opposed to classical physics, would be contradicted by the existence of psychic abilities such as telepathy. And Costa de Beauregard has gone even further and stated that uh, uh, the rules of quantum mechanics virtually demand that abilities such as telepathy exist. So it really is an ancient controversy. But back to your original question, the Gansfeld experiments are interesting telepathy experiments. They involve usually two people, one called a sender, one called a receiver. Uh, they're sitting in different rooms. Um, the the so-called receiver lies back in a chair, listens to relaxing music, and then has two ping-pong balls, half ping-pong balls, placed over their eyes and red light shone into their eyes and uh, white noise playing into um, headphones. This is the so-called Gansfeld. It's a German word meaning total field. It refers to the total undifferentiated perceptual field that the uh, receiver experiences. Meanwhile, the sender is in another room. A computer chooses one of four images, usually pictures of something or other. They concentrate on this picture and on sending it to the receiver. After about 15 minutes, the experiment ends. The receiver is shown four photographs and asked to choose which one was 
projected, if you will, uh, if you will, at them. And uh, if chance alone were operating, you'd expect a success rate of about 25 percent. But uh, consistently, the success rate is around 33, 34 percent, with sometimes particularly gifted subjects achieving hit rates of close to 50 percent. Um, and uh, the odds against chance for these results occurring are astronomical. And these results have been found in experiments from laboratories around the world. But even the U.S. Army was employing teams of um, clairvoyants uh, during the war and during the Cold War. Um, so as august a body as uh, the U.S. government was convinced that this was a real phenomenon. Why do you think the scientific establishment had such difficulty in coming to terms with it? Well, first of all, I think that's somewhat misleading. Um, surveys show that uh, most mainstream scientists are not opposed to psychical research. There were two surveys done of over 500 scientists in one case, over 1,000 in another, and both surveys found that the majority of respondents considered extrasensory perception either an established fact or a likely possibility. There's 56% in one survey and 67% in another. Um, but it was the psychologists who had the biggest problem with it. Yeah, that's right. Um, let's see here. Once in one study, 53% of the ESP is an impossibility responses came from psychologists, although psychologists made up only 6% of the total sample. By contrast, only 3% of natural scientists, that is, physicists, chemists, biologists, considered extrasensory perception an impossibility, compared to 34% of psychologists. So it's really a vocal minority. Mostly, mostly psychologists. Uh, Ray Hyman, Reg Alcock, Susan Blackmore, Richard Wiseman, they're all psychologists. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Why do you think that they had the greatest difficulty? Because these people are not, have not been trained in modern physics. They, the sort of physics that they, remem that they dimly remember is the classical physics they struggled with in high school. And uh, so they just, uh, they're just not acquainted with, the, uh, with modern physics. Their thinking is uh, hampered by ideas that have been uh, known to be false since the early years of the 20th century. Having a couple of degrees in psychology myself, um, I have the, the intuition that it might be something perhaps a bit deeper than that. I think psychologists have always had a bit of a chip on their shoulder as to whether or not psychology was real science. And it's almost like they, they are trying to overcompensate in the direction of, of uh, scientific rigor um, and, as you say, compounded with the fact that they don't have the same kind of uh, mathematical or theoretical background in physics. Um, I think there's there's a bit of uh, uh, protesting there going on because of of uh, insecurity. That's true. I think so. Um, it's also because of the name of the discipline, parapsychology. I mean, biologist Rupert Sheldrake, who's done a lot of research in this field, has said that he wouldn't want to be associated with a field called parabiology. <laughs> uh, 
you know, I mean, and parapsychology is a bit of a misnomer anyway because psychology is not the parent discipline of parapsychology. Parapsychology is really a multidisciplinary field. Um, but there's an interesting quote here. This is from the great psychologist Gardner Murphy. He was president of the American Psychological Association and later of the American Society for Psychical Research. And he urged his fellow psychologists to become better acquainted with modern physics. And I have a quote from him here. And he wrote, quote, the difficulties at the level of physics, not at the level of psychology. Psychologists may be a little bit bewildered when they encounter modern physicists who take these phenomena in stride, in fact take them much more seriously than psychologists do, saying as physicists that they are no longer bound by the types of Newtonian energy distribution, inverse square laws and so forth, with which scientists used to regard themselves as tightly bound. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, so he goes on to say that uh, the data from parapsychology will, will be almost certainly in harmony with general psychological principles and will be assimilated rather easily within the systematic framework of psychology as a science when once the imagined appropriateness of Newtonian physics is put aside and modern physics replaces it. Could you in simple terms explain the shift um, required of physicists um, from the Newtonian model to the quantum model? In simple terms. <laughs> yes. Okay. You well, can do it. As simple as possible terms, I guess. Um, well, Albert Einstein was asked to review a book on uh, on uh, extrasensory perception many decades ago. And uh, he wrote back with a famous reply saying that uh, the book has softened his, his outlook on this matter. We shouldn't go through the world with blinkers. But he protested that... Uh, extrasensory perception does not seem to be affected by distance or barriers of any sort, which seemed to him to make it implausible on a priori grounds, mm -hmm. because uh, all the forces of classical physics, physics such as the electromagnetic force, of course decline, decline in strength as they radiate from a source. They're affected by, yeah, they decline with distance according to the inverse square law. Um, but Albert Einstein was really the last great classical physicist. His work, relativity, is the crowning achievement of classical physics, and he never really could accept many of the claims of quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics does allow action at a distance, that is, action that does not uh, decline with distance. It's called non-local effects. And uh, it also allows non-mechanical causation, causation without the exchange of energy. And so modern physics may not explain psychic phenomena but it is consistent and allows psychical phenomena such as telepathy uh, effects which do not decline with distance and are not affected by barriers of any sort mm -hmm. uh, could you explain the distinction between the earlier form of inductive reasoning um, versus say Karl Popper's approach Right. Well, long ago the philosopher David Hume pointed out the problem of induction. That is, um, just because we see the sun coming up every day, that doesn't mean the sun will logically come up tomorrow. Or to use a different example, just because every single crow that we see is black, doesn't, doesn't logically imply the next crow we see will be black. And so he thought, he pointed out that induction is really illogical and so therefore all our beliefs about the world are therefore irrational. Karl Popper disagreed with this 
he thought that, uh, yes, he agreed with Hume that induction was not rational, but he argued that science can proceed on a purely deductive basis as long as we think of our scientific beliefs as merely conjectures which are open to revision if data comes along which proves them false. So, for example, the simple theory that all swans are white uh, can never be proven true because no matter how many white swans we see, it's logically possible the next swan we see will be black. Mm. However, the seeing one single black swan logically proves the theory false. So this, was, this led to Popper's famous demarcation between science and non-science. A theory is scientific if it is capable of being proven false. However, there's an asymmetry involved. Although we can, a single observation can prove our theories false, no amount of observation can ever prove our theories correct. Mm -hmm. Therefore, all scientific theories are merely conjectures. At best, they are approximations to the truth and not the truth. And this, of course, the reason why this is so valuable is because it provides a means by which science can learn from its mistakes and therefore advance and progress. Mm -hmm. Science advances with the falsification of theories, the expulsion of false theories from science and their replacement with theories which are better approximations to the truth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so that actually led to a, uh, a real flowering of, of uh, scientific thought and uh, indirectly made uh, quantum mechanics possible, would you say? Um. Or, or quantum mechanics is a demonstration of this principle. Yeah, I, I suppose you could say that. I think that the very Popper pointed out that the very best scientists were always aware mm -hmm. that their theories were conjectures, approximations to the truth. Popper really laid out something explicit, which was implicit in the thinking of many scientists. Um, Galileo was really the first person to uh, systematically test hypotheses, subject them to rigorous tests. Mm -hmm. That was that was really started the scientific revolution of the of the seventeenth uh, century. It's amazing how far we've come since then, and it seems to be speeding up. Do you have any sense of why uh, science is is it just the tools of things like computers and everything that have enabled um, science to advanced so dramatically in the last century, even in the last 20 or 50 years? Mm. I don't think there's any single one reason. I think modern communications has a lot to do with it too. People can communicate findings much faster than they could have, say, even 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, it's partly that. Um, yeah, and partly the tools that we have today and uh, the spread of education around the world. So let's get back to Psy. PSI people. Um, in your view, uh, or, or in, in the uh, scientists that you quote, um, they say that Psy certainly is consistent with um, modern science. How is it consistent? Give us an example. Well, I'm not sure I'd say it's consistent. I'd say that nothing in, con nothing in modern physics would be contradicted mm -hmm. by the existence of psychic abilities such as telepathy. Um, as I said earlier, uh, 
abilities such as telepathy do not seem to be affected by distance or barriers of any sort, means that, meaning they're not affected by the inverse square rule, which means they can't be uh, explained in terms of, say, the electromagnetic force. Um, but this, this doesn't really matter because, as I said earlier, uh, modern physics is, not, is no longer limited uh, in all of its to mechanical effects. It's no longer limited by uh, rules such as the inverse square rule. So, having gone through the uh, exercise that you did in your book, um, what do you feel is the implication of the fall of the House of Skeptics? I think that the field is extremely impoverished, the field of skepticism, I mean. I think that there's, they have nothing left to say. They're left with nothing but empty rhetoric. And what do you see as the future of um, psychic research or research into psychic phenomena? It's difficult to say. Um, I think that uh, at one point I quote Max Planck, who's the father of quantum mechanics, and he wrote that uh, a new truth does not triumph by convincing its opponents that it's correct and by persuading them. Rather, what happens is its opponents eventually die, a new generation grows up that's familiar with it. So I don't think that any of these diehard pseudo-skeptics are ever going to change their minds. I think that they'll just eventually fade from the scene. Oh, it's like what Buckminster Fuller said, you don't change the existing reality, you just come up with something new that makes it outmoded. Yeah, right. You wrote a book on uh, science and the near-death experience. Um, would you say that uh, there is a kind of a... Uh, experimental or experiential body of evidence for this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that was my second book, Science and the Near-Death Experience. Oh, it was? I see. Yeah, my first book was Science and Psychic Phenomena, the one we're, mm -hmm. we're talking about. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's reports of the near-death experience dating back centuries. And tell us about your book. Is it an overview of the, um, the evidence? Uh, the second book? Mm -hmm. uh, the second book picks up where the first one left off. Um, the first one, Science and Psychic Phenomena, deals with uh, the controversy, the persistent controversy over the existence of abilities such as telepathy. And it analyzes the nature of the dispute in great detail, tries to find the underlying reasons. The second one um, then deals with the near-death experience and deals, it's divided into three parts. The first one the first section deals with the question, does consciousness depend upon the brain? Uh, the second one deals with, second part deals with the near-death experience and all the proposed so-called explanations for it in terms of oxygen deprivation, carbon dioxide poisoning, what have you, shows them all to be inefficient or insufficient. And uh, the third part deals with the related phenomenon of uh, deathbed visions. Mm -hmm. But the underlying premise of both of these books is really that this, this so-called debate is not about evidence. It's about really competing worldviews. Um, there's actually there's actually a profound link between the ideology of secular humanism and uh, the so-called skeptical movement. I mean, 
the Committee for the World's Largest Skeptical Organization, the Committee for the Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal, or PSYCOP. They recently changed their name to CSI, Committee for Science Skeptical Investigation. They were founded in 1976 by atheist philosopher Paul Kurtz at a meeting of the American Humanist Association. And secular humanism is an ideology which has a uh, anti-religious, anti-superstitious agenda. And so most of these so-called skeptics and debunkers are actually militant atheists and secular humanists. If they admitted to the reality of abilities such as telepathy, if they admitted to the reality of the near-death experience as a genuine separation of mind from body, then the ancient doctrine of materialism would be proven false. And it's important to remember that materialism is one of the main pillars of their objections to religion and to superstition and to anything that smacks of spirituality. Therefore, if, it, if materialism collapsed, this pillar of their opposition would collapse and their case would be substantially weaker. They know this. It's no accident that uh, the skeptical movement is tied, closely tied to um, various uh, atheistic uh, organizations. Mm -hmm. I, I get the sense that we're coming full circle now because the the uh, movement of the, the the materialists, the rationalists, the skeptics um, came in reaction to um, centuries of domination and, and fear imposed by religious hierarchy, religious and, and uh, monarchical hierarchy, and so it was a a very kind of positive move for humanity to take this step out of the dark ages and into the age of enlightenment. Yeah, it really goes back all the way to the to the so-called enlightenment, which was the uh, can be thought of as the ideological aftermath of the scientific revolution of the 17th century. This was men like uh, Diderot and Voltaire. Uh, these people were well aware of uh, the horrors of the religious wars and. Uh, the burning of witches and the torture of heretics, and they were sickened by these things, rightly so. And so they used the new science to argue for a materialistic, mechanistic worldview. Um, essentially, they were arguing against the uh, domination over thought the church held for centuries. Mm -hmm. See, the data of parapsychology challenge deeply held worldviews that are concerned not only with science, but also, also with religious and philosophical issues. And that's why this evidence arouses strong passions, and for many of these skeptics a strong des desire to dismiss it. Mm -hmm. and, but it's almost like the, the pendulum has swung uh, to its, its extreme extent and now there are forces such as quantum mechanics and such as uh, people having direct personal uh, experience of, of uh, either near-death experiences or out-of-body experiences or other kinds of psychic uh, awareness that are pushing the pendulum back into saying something is communicating with us or we are able to communicate into some kind of field that we cannot see, taste, feel, or measure. Um, and, you know, what is it? It's like uh, spooky action at a distance. Isn't that some kind of physics term now? 
that's what Einstein referred to as entanglement. Mm -hmm. That's the it's the idea that two particles, which once interacted, uh, can still influence each other even if they're light years apart. Um, I do think that uh, the public is is uh, having their support for the the existence of telepathy and so forth, in a sense vindicated by uh, by the work of various scientists and popularizers of science. Um, I also think that a lot of people are realizing that it's possible to be to have spiritual beliefs without being dogmatically religious, mm -hmm. without without being intolerant or intolerant of other people's uh, beliefs. I think uh, that people are realizing that it's possible to have evidence-based beliefs on issues which used to be considered matters of faith. Yes, yes. Uh, I always come back to the parable of the blind men and the elephant. Even the most brilliant uh, visionary can only see a teeny fraction of any kind of big picture. So we're all doing our best to contribute our little piece of the puzzle. Yeah, um, it's interesting that uh, it's interesting to look at the track record of uh, skeptical organizations such as PSYCOP. Um, it's a British fellow named Guy Lyon Playfair, and uh, he, he wrote a very striking article called Has Psychop Lost the Thirty Years' War? <laughs> and what he found was, it was 25 years after the founding of Psychop, a Gallup poll revealed a clear increase in belief, just about everything from haunted houses, up 13%, and communication with the dead, up 10%, psychic healing, up 8%, reincarnation, up... 4%. Then in May 2006, the 30th anniversary of Psychop coincided almost to the day with another nasty shock to the skeptical system. A new poll commissioned by Reader's Digest, which surveyed more than 1,000 adults about their paranormal beliefs, revealed remarkably high levels of belief in such matters as knowing when somebody you can't see is staring at you and knowing who's calling you before you pick up the phone. Mm -hmm. um, then there was worst of all, uh, there was Psychop's own poll published in Skeptical Inquirer. This poll focused on college students, 439 of them. And the authors of the study explained, quote, We assumed that higher education, as one of the few remaining bastions of critical thinking, would provide little room for pseudoscientific or paranormal beliefs. End of quote. But what they found was unsettling. What they found was so unsettling was the fact that as the students' educational levels increased, so did their paranormal beliefs belief levels for all 14 subjects on which they were questioned. They divided the five students into five categories, from freshmen to graduates. And percentages of those described as believers rose steadily from 23% to 26, 27, 31, and finally 34% for the, for, the, uh, for the graduate students. So in other words, uh, an American college education increases belief in the paranormal by nearly 50%. And Lion Playfair uh, concluded that Psychop has lost the Thirty Years' War. <laughs> I, I just wonder whether it's just being out there in the world and, and, and getting exposed to uh, people who are otherwise very normal looking who um, explain that they've had these experiences. I think that's part of it. Um, I think it's also true that uh, people that take 
decide to do graduate degrees tend to be more curious about the world, more open-minded in general, not always, but in general than people who do not go on to higher education. Mm -hmm. So I, I think there's something to do with that. And it's also just the fact that, you know, they're a little bit older, they're a little bit wiser, they've had more experiences in the world, they've read a few more books. You look at uh, current media, whether it's um, uh, the news channels, whenever there is a phenomenon, a UFO phenomenon, uh, they tend to report it somewhat tongue-in-cheek. And yet the, the cable stations will carry um, John Edwards, you know, the Sylvia Brown, the, the psychic shows, they carry ghost uh, paranormal investigators and so on. There's, there's just seems to be such a hunger for the mystical and mysterious amongst the uh, general public. Yes, I think so. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, curiosity is a good thing. Curiosity about the unknown is a good thing. What is not good is when these so-called skeptics um, try to dismiss the evidence. And I have several examples in my book where they actually try to dismiss it. There's a fellow named Peter Atkins. He's a chemist at Oxford. And uh, he criticized the British Association for the Advancement of Science for allowing the biologist Rupert Sheldrake to present a paper on telephone telepathy at a meeting of the British Association for the Advancement of Science. Now, this is extraordinary. He's condemning, he's condemning a scientific association for allowing a scientist to present his empirical results. Why? Because Atkins is a militant atheist, and this is contrary to his, his uh, worldview. Well, the, there is a school of thought that says that the uh, contact with extraterrestrials has been uh, with us for a long time. And one of the reasons that it is has been suppressed is that, uh, precisely that, that it would upset um, the established worldview. And uh, the int I, I guess the religious hierarchy uh, is feeling um, threatened. Well, I'm not sure, I'm not sure I'd agree with that. Um, my book, Science and Psychic Phenomena, is not about uh, unidentified flying objects or anything like that. It's about the controversy over, uh, the persistent controversy over the existence of psychic abilities. But um, I read an article once in which various religious leaders were questioned about their beliefs uh, in extraterrestrials and the usual response according to this this person this author was one of uh, amusement they seem to find the whole idea quite funny mm -hmm. so I don't I don't really think they're threatened by it or challenged by it Rupert Sheldrake the biologist that I mentioned by the way he wrote the foreword to my to my first book yeah he, he was uh, very well known for one book about dogs who know when their masters are coming home that's right. And uh, also, didn't he sort of uh, coin the term, the, what was it, the field? Oh, morphic fields. Mor the morphic, morphogenetic field, yeah. Yeah. Um, but all of, th this is all of a piece, and, and somehow we're trying to connect the various bits, right? So... Uh, you know, going to the, the, the effort of demonstrating that the skeptic argument doesn't really hold water, um, where do you take the 
existence of psi phenomenon beyond that into into what bigger picture do you plug it or connect it hmm well there's been um conferences of the American Association of Advancement of Science, the American Psychological Association, the American Statistical Association. Um, they've all had seminars on Psy research. Um, there's been lectures on Psy research presented for diplomats of the United Nations, for academics at Harvard, for scientists at Bell Laboratories. Um, the Pentagon has also examined, has examined uh, these abilities and uh, They've concluded that the experimental evidence for certain forms of psychic phenomena merits serious scientific study. It may have, um, I guess the million dollar question is what practical applications could these things have? Um, perhaps, I'm not exactly sure, perhaps in the form of healing. Some forms of healing therapies might utilize this. Some forms of communication. Mm -hmm. Do you have a sense of the larger matrix into which of which psychic phenomena are a part? Hmm. I think I think that it points these abilities point to the unknown. These abilities are mysterious. We don't really know how they work. That's partly true because we really have no idea how consciousness operates and we have absolutely no theories of well, no good theories of consciousness. Um, so I, I'd say they point towards the unknown. The first book, uh, Psych Science and Psychic Phenomena, is really the first in a, in a trilogy. The second one was on near-death experiences, and the third book out in the fall is uh, on the other forms of evidence for um, for survival of death. Mm -hmm. So my book is really the first in a series which is about, is ultimately about much more than uh, merely extrasensory perception. Mm -hmm. And that is pretty much what I was aiming at. Um, there's been a whole raft of books written by medical doctors uh, about persistence of the of consciousness beyond death. Um, I remember years ago interviewing a, um, uh, a coroner, um, Janice Amatuzio, um, who finally wrote a book about her experiences. Um, there, there, uh, there is so much more, you know, within the the cosmology um, of consciousness and and uh, source, what, what people call source, supreme being, God. Um, there seems to be, uh, I, I think we're still, just as within physics, they're looking for the unified field theory, we're still looking for the unified um, theory of everything, the, the understanding of God and the cosmos. Do, do you feel uh, a picture kind of developing in your mind about how things might be connected, might work? Not sure. Um, I think that uh, I think that the ancient doctrine of materialism, which dates back to the ancient Greeks, and which was um, 
thought to gain theoretical support from the physics of Isaac Newton, um, I think that that is uh, the worldview based upon materialism is being shown to be false, and more and more people are realizing that this worldview is false. Um, so I, I do think that uh, so-called skeptical organizations like PSYCOP or CSI, whatever they call themselves now, I do think that they're going the way of the dinosaur. Um, I don't think they'll go quietly into the night. I think they go, they'll go kicking and screaming. But I do think their days are numbered. Yeah, but we're not just talking about one organization. We're actually talking about the entrenched or, or the, the, I guess, most widely promoted, generally accepted worldview um, that will not bring sniggers at a cocktail party. Um, and, and I, you know, even when, when I interview psychics, um, almost invariably they will say how uh, as children they, they were suppressed by their parents or if they were uh, encouraged by their parents, they then felt that they had to hide their gifts from other people because they would uh, be subject to, to ridicule. And ridicule is, is the most... The, the sharpest tool that people have to put down um, theories that, that uh, people are uncomfortable with, can't deal with, don't fit into their worldview. So they, they make fun of them, um, as I'm sure you, you have uh, experienced firsthand. Actually, actually, no, I haven't. I've never been. Well, you you talk you talk about uh, the the person with whom you had a disagreement. I guess they weren't ridiculing you; they were just being silly. Well, they were being dogmatic. They were, the person was very ignorant, very closed-minded. Um, the person is still out there on their little crusade years later. Um, I don't think this person is taken seriously. I don't think that. Uh, He's managed to convince anyone or bring anyone to his, over to his point of view. I think that he's uh, he's a sophist, and uh, most people can see right through him. Mm -hmm. But there's um, you know, uh, skeptics are so you know, genuine skepticism is an important part of science, but genuine skepticism involves the practice of doubt, not the practice of denial, uh, and so most of these skeptics are not really genuine skeptics, they're deniers. They often quote Carl Sagan's remark that uh, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And this rule of thumb is useful as a guide. But we have to remember that we have no objective guidelines as to what constitutes an extraordinary claim or what counts as extraordinary evidence. And as our theories change, what was once considered extraordinary can become quite ordinary. Yeah, as for instance, what's happened with yeah. yeah, with the acceptance of meteorites, continental drift, and quantum mechanics. Mm -hmm. uh, meteorites, the reports of rocks that fall from the sky, were ridiculed for decades. Uh, continental drift was ridiculed for decades because there was no known mechanism by which the continents could move about. But now, nowadays, every school child knows all about meteorites and continental drift and takes these things for granted. Mm. Um, what makes the claims of the psychic researchers so extraordinary to the so-called skeptics is the supposed inconsistency of psychic abilities with all of modern science. And this misconception 
probably more than any other factor, explains the continuing refusal of skeptics to ex ex accept the best of the latest evidence as conclusive, even when they've run out of counter-explanations. Mm -hmm. And they have run out of counter-explanations, as I show in my book. I have s several skeptics admitting that they simply cannot explain the data, yet they still refuse to accept it, most of them, of course, being psychologists and also professional debunkers such as Richard Wiseman people who have, and James Randi, people who have made careers for themselves as professional debunkers. In a sense, they're mercenaries for the militant atheists and secular humanists. They are um, mercenaries in an ideological battle. And uh, we also have to remember that the majority of the population say they've experienced telepathy, especially in connection with telephone calls. So in that sense then, telepathy is ordinary. Mm -hmm. But the claim that most people are deluded about their own experiences is certainly extraordinary. So we may ask, where's the extraordinary evidence for that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Indeed. Yeah. Well, so where, where will you take it from here? Uh, as I said before, my third book is coming out in the fall. It's uh, the third final book in my trilogy. Um, the first book has been re-released. It, it was originally released as a book titled Parapsychology and the Skeptics. But unfortunately, my first publisher actually went bankrupt. And so the manuscript was picked up by another publishing house. I uh, added a f bit of new material. I souped it up a little bit. And it was re-released as Science and Psychic Phenomena. Um, my books have websites which accompany them. And so, they are? Well, for the first book, uh, the name of the website is the same name as the book. So it's scienceandpsychicphenomena.com mm -hmm. and there they can read excerpts in the book, they can see the table of contents, they can read uh, endorsements from various uh, writers such as uh, uh, Dean Radin, <laughs> Dean Radin endorsed it, Neil Grossman, Richard yeah. Broughton, John Palmer who's the editor of the Journal of Parapsychology, statistician Jessica Utz, uh, Robert Bobrow, he's an associate professor of medicine at Stony Brook University so, yeah, got a lot of good endorsements. So, bottom line, I think the very eminent people are coming uh, to the conclusion that there is nothing uh, unscientific about postulating or, or uh, accepting the, the, the possibility of psychic phenomena. Absolutely not. What, what is unscientific is, to ref, is refusal to look at data that challenges one's preconceived ideas. That's yeah. the very definition of pseudoscience. Mm -hmm. And that's what you meant by fall of the house of skeptics. That's right. Mm -hmm. Great. And um, what are you doing in Korea? I, uh, I teach mathematics. Wow. Excellent. Yeah. And... Um, do you have another website, Chris, that people should, if people wish to connect with you? Well, the first website is W Science and Psychic Phenomena. That's mm -hmm. for the first book. My second book also has a website with the same title as the book, so it's called Science and the Near Death Experience.com. Well, it's been uh, an intriguing conversation, Chris. I'm, I'm so pleased that we were finally able to um, get together. Uh, across the across the thousands of miles. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Goodbye. 
All right. Bye, Miriam. So, listeners, I hope you'll join us next week when our guest will be clinical psychologist Dr. Peter Lambrow. We'll be discussing his book, Code to Joy, The Four-Step Solution to Unlocking Your Natural State of Happiness. He'll describe some really powerful techniques that anyone can apply, so don't miss it. And now we're going to close our show with some musical inspiration from the fabulous Gina Citoli. It's called, It All Comes Down to Love. Oh!
That was It All Comes Down to Love, another terrific song by award-winning singer-songwriter Gina Citoli from Minneapolis, Minnesota, in collaboration with Grammy-winning producer Barry Goldstein. Gina offers an array of dynamic and thought-provoking shows, including an amazing one-woman musical called A Cabaret of Consciousness. It All Comes Down to Love was the 2004 winner for the best rock ballad in the Hollywood Spiritual Film and Entertainment Festival. You can order and download Gina's music from CD Baby or from her website, ginacitoli.net. That's G-I-N-A-C-I-T-O-L-I dot net. Well, that wraps up our show for today. If you enjoyed our show and are looking for more inspiration, check out the great books, films, blogs, and interviews on our website, ncreview.com. I hope you'll stay in touch by liking us on Facebook at facebook.com slash ncreview. And if you enjoyed our show, I hope you'll tell your friends. So until next week, I'm Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Albert Einstein said, I believe in intuition and inspiration. Imagination is more important than knowledge, for knowledge is limited, whereas imagination embraces the entire world, stimulating progress, giving birth to evolution. New Consciousness Review is all about the media of inspiration and trusting your intuition. Join us at ncreview.com, your partner in conscious evolution. You've been listening to NCR Radio. If you missed any of Miriam's shows, you can find them on demand any day and time on her show page. You can also download podcasts to your iPhone and take these inspiring shows with you wherever and whenever you like. If you have a question or comment for Miriam, you can follow her on Facebook at facebook.com slash ncreview. That's facebook.com slash ncreview. Be sure and join us next week for more passionate and exciting guests on NCR Radio. Yeah.